I am delighted to introduce Dr. Hannah Reichel as our next speaker. She is Associate Professor of Reformed Theology at the August Institution that is Princeton Theological Seminary. While Dr. Reichel is a quintessential global citizen, uh, she undertook her theological training in Germany and she began her current position at Princeton this last academic year. She's the author of Theologie als Bekenntnis, a book on Barth's lectures on the Heidelberg Catechism, and that book was honored with a Manfred Lautenschläger Award for Theological Promise. She's currently working on a striking project that relates the divine attribute of omniscience to the realities of surveillance culture. Dr. Reichel is a theologian who combines an intimidatingly wide array of interests with a strikingly clear, even-tempered, but also wonderfully uncompromising theological sensibility. And we are fortunate indeed to have her with us today. Her lecture is entitled, The Other Question Between Projection, Colonial Imagination, and Liberation. And I ask that you would join me in welcoming, me, in welcoming her to the podium. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. And thank you, Paul, for this very warm welcome. I did not imagine at the time that I was invited to speak here in this illustrious institution that at the time I would be here, I was already part of the background wallpaper. Um, but it's good. <laughs> so Karl Barth and the Future of Liberation Theology is the illustrious and ambitious title of this conference. And Barth is decidedly part of liberation theology's past. In fact, that is something that has been held against liberation theology by their post-colonial successors. But is he part of its future? And then again, Karl Barth's own answer to this question might have been, the future of liberation theology is Jesus Christ. And it's one of the strengths and one of the weaknesses of Karl Barth's theology that this answer seems so predictable. You should have a handout which would help you to follow along um, my lecture because it has the outline and some of the most important quotes on it. The question about the future of liberation theology can also be reframed as, what is the end of liberation? And the answer may be freedom from marginalization and destitution, oppression and subjugation, violence and structural sin. Or a more positive answer could be justice, right relations, human flourishing. Already classic Latin American liberation theology, to which Dr. Rivera Pagan introduced us graciously yesterday, was very much aware of the fact that such a true liberation can only be achieved if not only the oppressed, but also the oppressors are disentangled from the effects of their sin. Both sides need their humanity restored. And the preferential option for the poor or the marginalized never meant a romanticization of poverty or the margins. It sought to overcome them. Nor was it a call for a mere inversion of relations between the privileged 
and the disenfranchised. Turning the tables doesn't change the game. And since the end of dependence theory and the intersectional complications introduced by feminist and postcolonial critiques, it has become even clearer that a mere inversion of relations is no viable, options for, no viable option towards liberation. What is necessary for a true liberation is that humanity's division into privileged and marginalized, into center and periphery, and into so many concrete oppressive hierarchical relations is overcome. In the broadest sense then, we could say the end of liberation is the restoration of full humanity in right relations, in a comprehensive spiritual, material, and even political sense. Right relations with ourselves, others, the world, and God. And in a more traditional theological language, this is called reconciliation or atonement. In the original sense of the world, at, of the word at one meant, to make two parties one. And this will be a focus explored towards the end of my paper. From the broad vision of right relations, the question concerning me here will be the question of the other that is so central in many contemporary projects of liberation, more precisely, the relation of the other to the self and the role of the holy other in this relationship. I will first turn to liberation theology's past. Ludwig Feuerbach was not only a contemporary of Marx, but shared with him the young Hegelian heritage with a, post, uh, with a materialist turn. And Feuerbach articulated one of modernity's most fervent criticisms of religion, a vision of liberation from religion's imaginary other towards a true humanism. And I will contrast his dream with what we call, could call the critique of modernity's own religion or illusion with critical analysis of how modernity's constructions of universal humanity have been blind to the fact that they worked at the expense of other human beings. And from that impasse between modern optimism and late modern pessimism, I will mine Karl Barth's, Karl Barth's theology for the role of God as the holy other and what this can play in writing relations. And building on Barth, but going beyond Barth, I will propose the atonement as a process where God stepped in to take the place not only of the revered, but of the otherized other, and bore our sins of otherization to the cross. So first, modernity's critique of religion. At the height of modernity, Ludwig Feuerbach had a dream. He dreamed of the realization of universal humanity without division, discrimination, or limitation. Love for the other person was to be the highest principle. And in line with Immanuel Kant's motto to see the human person as an end in itself rather than as a means to another end, he postulated that the core Christian belief should be inverted. God is love should be translated to love is divine. Religious imagination, thus Feuerbach reasoned, clearly did set the good of humankind as its own end, and it celebrated in God perfections of the most specifically human qualities it appreciated in humankind. 
the essence of the Christian religion in this sense is the human being's salvation and fulfillment. Thus, faith in a God who has humanity in view is merely a detour on the way to humanity. Thus, Feuerbach's reasoning. So God, he argued, was merely an idealized image of humankind projected outside of itself onto an imaginary other, but detracting from the real human other. For Feuerbach, the possibility of this projection was grounded in the highest human capacities, reason, will, and affect, make the human human, because they are always directed at an other and constitute the human being through this other. It is, however, also possible for the human being to apply them to itself, make the self the object of reason, will, affect. Naturally designed to be directed outward, the human being thus in mistakenly interprets the contemplated object as a separate, distinct reality outside of itself. Quote, man, this is the mystery of religion, projects his being into objectivity and then again makes himself an object to this proposed image of himself, thus converted into a subject. He thinks of himself as an object to himself, but as the object of an object of another being than himself. The characteristics found in this objectified self, consequently attributed to the divine, are thus merely the characteristics of human nature beyond the limitations of the individual. It turns out for Feuerbach that the divine being is nothing else than the human being, rather the human nature purified. And Feuerbach believed that the true end of religion, humanity, love for the human other could be reached directly and more fully if one got rid of this false consciousness of religion. Feuerbach did not see religion just as inefficient, just as a detour, but as, quote, profoundly injurious in its effect on humankind, unquote. Three particular injuries. First, faith creates God in the image of humankind, but this idealized image depreciates the real human being in relation to God up to the point of making God the perfect, the perfect antithesis of humanity to the detriment of humanity. Quote, God is not what man is. Man is not what God is. God is the infinite, man the finite being. God is perfect, man imperfect. God eternal, man temporal. God almighty, man weak. God holy, man sinful. God and man are extremes. God is the absolutely positive, the sum of all realities. Man, the absolutely negative, comprehending all negations." Unquote. So the logic of the differentiation achieved in the projection implies that, quote, to enrich God, man must become poor, that God may be all, man must be nothing, unquote. Feuerbach inferred that religion thus, quote, sacrifices the human being to God. The bloody human sacrifice is in fact only a rude material expression of the inmost secret of religion, unquote. Secondly, religion establishes an eternal division within humankind, 
dividing it into believers and unbelievers and treating them differently. Feuerbach holds that faith is essentially a spirit of partisanship and proposes that in the traditional dialectic of faith and love, one should side with love against faith. Quote, faith isolates God. It makes him a particular distinct being. Love universalizes. It makes God a common being, the love of whom is one with the love of men. Faith produces in men an inward disunion, a disunion with himself, and by consequence, an outward disunion also. But love heals the wounds which are made by faith in the heart of man." Unquote. And thirdly, religion allows for the greatest atrocities against humankind to be justified and even immunized, immunized against any kind of rational criticism. Quote, wherever morality is based on theology, wherever the right is made dependent on divine authority, the most immoral, unjust, infamous things can be justified and established. To place anything in God or to derive anything from God is nothing more than to withdraw it from the test of reason, to institute it as indubitable, unassailable, sacred, without rendering an account why." Unquote. And we know from the history that these things have happened and continue to happen all the time. So over against these malignant tendencies of religion, its criticism becomes not just a matter of intellectual transparency, but of humanism. The love and unity to which humanity is destined must be liberated from its religious bond to a projected God and liberated towards a true universal love for the human other. Noble ends, indeed. Feuerbach thus declared it his task to, quote, destroy the illusion created by religion in order to reveal its true essence, universal humanity. Quote, love should be immediate, rather than go the detour via an imagined divine being. Feuerbach dreams that wherever a human being loves man for the sake of man, who rises to universal love, he, there he is a Christ himself. He does what Christ did, what made Christ Christ. Thus, where there arises the consciousness of the species as species. The idea of humanity as a whole, Christ disappears, without, however, his true nature disappearing. For he was but the substitute for the consciousness of the species, the image under which it was made present to the people, and became the law of the popular life." Unquote. Feuerbach can sum up the real nature of religion in the phrase, homo homini deus est. The human being is, and thus should be, God to the human being. Barth himself held Feuerbach in high esteem and acknowledged that in trying to get to the true core of religion, Feuerbach's intention is, quote, as positive as, as that of any theologian. He's not a mere skeptic or naysayer, unquote. Even apart from the question of God, however, unfortunately, Feuerbach was wrong. While Feuerbach did intend to liberate the whole human being with materiality, uh, materiality and historicality and everything, he still endorsed a one-sidedly optimistic view of this whole human being. Homo, homo homini deus est, he postulates, 
but seems curiously oblivious of the corollary of this phrase, homo homini lupus est. Human being is a wolf to the human being. Thomas Hobbes had differentiated both aspects in the following way. The first is true if we compare citizens among themselves, and the second if we compare cities. He thus understood human beings to have a generous and loving attitude merely towards their own in-group, but to establish and defend the same by acting aggressively and violently against those others outside of the circle. Feuerbach may have truly believed that modernity would be able to include everyone in the identity of a common humanity, and that, that there would be no more outsiders, rendering the second half of the proverb vacuous or void. But we know today that modernity was and is blind to mechanisms of exclusion of others, accompanying this very ideal of universal humanity. And in an unprecedented way, modernity manifested the other side of the proverb as well and revealed how much the human being really is a proverbial wolf to the human other. It is along these lines that Barth claimed Feuerbach's vision had fundamentally misunderstood not only God, but the human being. Feuerbach was, as he said, a Nichtkenner des Todes and Verkenner des Bösen. So literally, he had no knowledge of God and didn't understand evil. Bart explains, indeed, he who knew, knew that we human beings are evil from head to toe and who reflected on the fact that we are mortal, he would surely recognize it as the most illusionary of illusions that the essence of God is the essence of humankind. He would leave God, even if he thought him just a dream, alone with such confusions with ourselves. In human existence, we do not only recognize divine traits, but, but most of all, humans' sinfulness. Bart, in turn, proposes to invert Feuerbach's solution. He proposes that the path to liberation is, quote, to comprehend the human being in God, not God in the human being, unquote. And we will come back to that. But first, I turn to critical analyses that continue to inform contemporary liberation projects in order to elucidate this neglected side of Feuerbach's anthropology. Enrique Dussel, Edward Said, and Simone de Beauvoir share Feuerbach's assumption that human beings are intended toward an other, but they highlight the hidden otherizing side of this relation, the quite inhumane side of humanity, or theologically speaking, humanity's sinfulness. First, Enrique Dussel. Feuerbach is a good representative of modernity's self-understanding and self-portrayal as emancipatory and liberatory. In this vein, modernity is commonly tied to notions of enlightenment, rationality, progress, democracy, freedom, and most important and foundationally, subjectivity, the auto-constitution of the modern individual as a rational and moral agent through self-reflection of their conscious experience. The lofty ideals invoked in modernity have an invisible, violent underside, and this is no unfortunate coincidence. Liberation philosophies have pointed out that modernity and modern subjectivity is not for, first and foremost founded in introspection, but deeply tied to colonialism and imperialism, the rise of capitalism, slavery, and exploitation. 
As Enrique Dussel puts it, homo homini lupus is the real, that is political, definition of the ego cogito and the modern and contemporary European philosophy. Dussel argues that, quote, the emergence of an ego cogito was grounded in the conquest of America and that it is the year 1492 that should mark the birth date of modernity instead of Descartes' Meditationes or, for that ma matter, Luther's thesis or Kant's critiques. Dussel details, quote, the experience not only of discovery but especially of the conquest is essential to the constitution of the modern ego, not only as a subjectivity but a subjectivity that takes itself to be the center and end of history, unquote. In his history of the conquest of the Americas, Dussel observes, quote, modernity came to birth in Europe's confrontation with the other. By controlling, conquering, and violating the other, Europe defined itself as discoverer, conquistador, and colonizer of an, alter of an alter alterity likewise constitutive of modernity. Europe never discovered the other as other, but covered over the other as part of the same, which is Europe. Modern subjectivity is often portrayed as self-referential, not defined anymore by its relation to an external other like God, but only by its self-identity, self-transparency, and rationality. However, this process masks its own underside. The subject does not establish a unity of humankind in its shared love for one another, as Feuerbach dreamed it would, but establishes itself in, by, and through the subjugation and even the eclipse of the human other. In this case, the Amerindian others who were all but wiped out by the conquistadors and of whose cultures little to nothing remain. Dussel actually draws on Feuerbach only to turn him critically against the modern ideals he entertained. Eurocentrism has projected and divinized not humanity, but the particular European subject into a system, a prevailing totality, a god fetish, as Dussel calls it. And Dussel calls for the overthrow of this fetish god that is merely a veiled apotheosis of the European subject. In his analysis, universal humanity and a belief in God as the divine other are not mutually exclusive. On the contrary, the other, quote, has an anal analogous meaning. It can be the anthropological other, or it can be the absolutely absolute other. Other not only than the world, but then the very cosmos, unquote. In liberation theology, this analogy translates into epistemology. God as the transcendent other beyond human reach can best be found in, quote, those persons who, as victims of the world system, have been excluded from the world system and thus remain invisible to the center, unquote. Therefore, religion does not lead to sacrifice the human to the divine, but on the contrary, can help to establish the worth of the human other through their identification with the divine other. However, Dussel also cautions, quote, any religious worship that does not begin on the periphery among the excluded victims of the world system can only be worship of an idol, a god who legitimates the system of domination either explicitly 
or implicitly, unquote. The defense of true humanity that is attentive to, the, to those on the underside of history, quote, can be articulated theologically only in the form of analogically related liberation theologies, which proclaim the ir irreducibility of both God and the person to any system. Thus, only a conversion to the other in both senses can be the beginning of the process of liberation, unquote. The supplement which Dussel provides to Feuerbach's analysis illuminates the story of modernity at large. The idealized homo homini deus is only half the truth, and it is affected through the homo homini lupus, the assertion of the self over against the other to the point of their eclipse, their being rendered invisible in the narrative of modernity. Translated into traditional theological language, we arrive at an insight of hamartiology. The attempt of divinizing the human being, in fact, leads to the dehumanization of the human being. Structurally similar analyses have been proposed in different projects of liberation as well. Amerindia is not the only other invented and otherized in the self-constitution of the modern ego. In his groundbreaking work, Orientalism, Edward Said lucidly exposes how the Orient was invented for the benefit of Western identity. The self-definition as Western posits an identity worked in contrast to some imaginary Eastern counterpart subsuming everything from the Maghreb to China as a variation of the Oriental other. The Orient, Said claims, is set as Europe's exteriority, but in fact is all but internal to it. The Orient is, quote, an integral part of European material civilization and culture because it has helped define Europe or the West as its contrasting image, idea, personality, experience. European culture gained in strength and identity by setting itself off against the Orient as a sort of surrogate and even underground self, unquote. Said meticulously elucidates how the Orient was constructed as a negative projection of Europe's self-construction. Quote, to the Westerner, the Oriental was always like some aspect of the West, while at the same time being set off as different and distant. In effect, the Orient was represented as a variation of the European self, but as its inferior reverse image in order to come to an understanding of this Western self. And the characteristics attributed to the Orient can oscillate between intrigue and repulsion, but the pattern is clear, quote, the Orient is irrational, depraved, childlike, different. Thus, the European is rational, virtuous, mature, normal, unquote. Orientalism as a discourse and a field of knowledge was and is in a complex way intertwined with European conquest and domination, both deriving from it and legitimizing it in turn. Said points out how, quote, the, Euro the, the, Euro the Orientalist reality is both anti-human and persistent, unquote, to the present. The quasi-divinization of Western identity continues to result in inhumanities against non-Western people and nations. It informs prejudice and discrimination. It justifies hegemony and military intervention to the state. 
Said himself profoundly and thoughtfully poses the question, can one divide human reality, as indeed human reality seems to be genuinely divided, into clearly different cultures, histories, traditions, societies, even races, and survive the consequences humanly? Can one, indeed? Said's question overlooks the division of human reality into sexes and genders, one that is particularly prone to oppression and subjugation. And feminist critique has analyzed how humanity has been defined by otherizing half of it. Simone de Beauvoir reveals how the invention of the second sex implies that by default, quote, humanity is male and man defines woman, not herself, but as relative to him, unquote. Woman is, quote, de determined and differentiated in relation to man, while he is not in relation to her. She is in essential in front of the essential. He is the subject, he is the absolute, she is the other, unquote. In order to achieve this, the essence of woman is formulated, again, as an inverse mirror image projected from the self-definition of man. Man is rational, strong defined by his mind, succeeds by seeking transcendence, is active in the public realm. Women are irrational, weak, defined by their body, erotic, reproductive, or caregiving, and limited, limited to imminence and private spaces. De Beauvoir observes, however, that the underlying issue goes beyond gender questions. Quote, the category of other is as original as consciousness itself. Alterity is the fundamental category of human thought. No group ever defines itself as one without immediately setting up the other opposite itself." Unquote. So like Dussel and Said, de Beauvoir also seems to indicate that Feuerbach's celebration of the homo homini deus missed the underside of, homo, of human nature, the homo homini lupus, manifest in the otherization, subjugation, and oppression on the way to self-assertion. De Beauvoir points out, quote, these phenomena could not be understood if human reality were solely a mitzain, a being in fellowship, based on solidarity and friendship. On the contrary, they become clear if, following Hegel, a fundamental hostility to any other consciousness is found in consciousness itself. The subject, posits itself only in opposition. It asserts itself as the essential and sets up the other as inessential, as the object. So whether we attribute these phenomena of othering to a specific logic of Western modernity or to evolutionary psychology or to human creaturely existence in a, in a theological sense, it would seem that human beings are indeed directed at an other and constitute themselves in relationship and in opposition to such an other. Identity requires an other for its own functioning. This can result in attributing infinite worth to the other person, but reality checks from the, the different camps of critical theory confirm it at least also results in otherizing others into inferiority and oppression, or even oblivion. Every universalism rests on an act of exclusion, 
Every totality requires an exteriorized other. Even after any potential unmasking of religion as an illusion, the human being is not only God to humankind, but wolf to humankind as well. Translating this into theological categories, Feuerbach's dream of universal humanity by overthrow of religion's big other was misguided because it failed to appreciate the sinful nature of the human being. The direct affirmation of humanity is unable to escape inhumane, dehumanizing relations. In fact, it actively produces them. It almost seems as if we need a different other to liberate us from otherizing others. In postcolonial theory, there have been attempts to project such a different non-human other by the name of planetarity that would permit to establish a universal humanity. I will skip over them now because in our context here, we may not need to invent a different other. The elephant in the room, of course, is Karl Barth's notion of God as the holy other. In his Romans commentary, Barth declares the otherness of God as the pivotal point of his whole theology. Quote, if I have a system, it is limited to the recognition of what Kierkegaard called the infinite qualitative distinction between time and eternity. God is in heaven, thou art on earth, unquote. And in Barth, this difference is indeed worked in distinction, polarization, an outright opposition between God and the human being. He introduces the idea of the holy other in the context of a critique of religion that is at least as scathing as Feuerbach's. Like Feuerbach, Barth sees religion as a thinly veiled enterprise of human egoism. And like Feuerbach, Barth sees religion as deeply misguided. But unlike Feuerbach, Barth does not believe that humankind can overcome its religious condition. And what Feuerbach saw as the true essence to be saved from its religion, from the illusionary form of religion, is precisely the illusion Barth denounces, humankind making itself its own god. For Barth, religion may be a lie, but it is not merely a matter of false consciousness. Instead, quote, the meaning of religion is to reveal the power with which sin rules the human being in this world. Even the religious human being is a sinner, especially he as a religious, human, a religious being." Unquote. The lie, which is the sin of religion, lies in the creation of a different illusion than Feuerbach's. The illusion that the human being is able and capable in themselves to reach God, grasp God, and thus implicitly to work out their own salvation. In the sense, Feuerbach's proposal of overcoming the religious illusion would still be just as religious for Barth, because Feuerbach's way out is in fact the affirmation of what Barth calls the religious possibility itself. Where, Bar uh, where Feuerbach wanted to overcome humanity's other in the guise of religion, for Barth it is precisely and only the frightening reality of this holy other that can break through the lie of religion. The confrontation with the holy other marks first and foremost a barrier and a border, a no to the human being, 
stripping away all quasi-divine pretensions. God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ, quote, relativizes all human possibilities and is thus even the death sentence for this religious human being. But in this way, it also serves to constitute the positive identity which the human being cannot provide for itself. Quote, that a human being is the human being, the strangely humiliating fact one cannot tell oneself. It must be told, it must be given as an answer to humankind. Unquote. The revelation of the holy other is thus not only judgment, it is also peace. It is the reconciling point of history because it writes the relations between God and the human being. This external constitution of identity is also a strong internal equalizer for humankind. The radical otherness of God does not challenge a specific kind of religiosity or morality more or less severe than any other. Rather, quote, he confronts all human beings as God, unquote. The absolute alterity of God thus effects, quote, the radical dissolution of all physical, intellectual, and spiritual achievements of men and the all-embracing relativization of all human distinctions, unquote. There's only one true otherness. And in comparison with that, quote, all distinctions between human beings are seen to be trivial, unquote. The alterity of God is thus the exterior other serving to establish the universality of humanity, the common humanity of all human beings. The human being's identity is now found in contrast and opposition to this holy other who remains incommensurably different and radically exterior to humankind. This disrupts all other relationships between human beings, both of direct human fellowship and of direct human antagonism. But these relationships are reconstituted via the one relation to the holy other, and as every one is related to the one individually, all are indirectly in a relation of fellowship together. Barth's holy other is a powerful ideology critique of religion, both of the human attempt at self-constitution and of the attempt at grasping God. The uncompromising alterity of the holy other cannot be objectified and thus cannot be made to serve our self-constitution. This is really what distinguishes the holy other from all these little others we constantly otherize by unfavorably comparing them to ourselves. At the time of his Romans commentary, Bart was more concerned with the critical than with the constructive function of this alterity. And more concerned, we could say, with the liberation of God than with the liberation of the human being. He claims, famously, we are standing more deeply in the no than in the yes. But already at the time, Bart claims both a negative and a positive function of the infinite qualitative distinction. The holy other is not just an abstract category or a being only completely distinct and separate from humankind. Already the early Bart emphasizes that there is no holy other God apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ as, quote, the holy other human being. 
In his later work, Barth will further qualify this early harshness and insist that the idea of God as the holy other, if viewed in abstraction and isolation from its Christological concretion, is untenable, corrupt, and pagan. The holy other in itself is pagan, a pagan idea. The holy other is not an abstract deity or, quote, a God who is strange to the human being, but one who, in Jesus Christ, is from the very first his God, is a concrete and genuine counterpart, a true other for the human being. God is the holy other not because he is transcendent and removed, but precisely insofar as he is, quote, at the same time among us and for us as a concrete holy other one. Um, the English translation actually says a quite different one here, but the German original is a ganz andere, the same as the holy other previously announced. So he's the holy other precisely as he is for us as a concrete holy other one. His divinity reveals itself in his solidarity with the human being to the point of God's adopting the human cause as his own cause and the human form and existence as his own form and existence. God's alterity as God's humanity in Jesus Christ actually has not to be seen only as a no and a judgment over humankind, but first of all, as an encompassing yes. Quote, a quite definite distinction of the human being as such, unquote. The divine otherness is not just egalitarian in its critique, but also in its affirmation. Quote, on the basis of the eternal will of God, we have to think of every human being, even the oddest, most villainous or miserable, as one to whom Jesus Christ is brother and God is father. And we have to deal with him on this assumption. The humanity of God is identical with the practical acknowledgement of the other human beings' human rights and human dignity. The notion of the holy other remains a critique of the human being, but it becomes at the same time more affirming of humanity. In any case, it remains just as dialectical in Barth's late work as it was in his early. And this becomes clear in the movements of the church dogmatics uh, of the fourth volume, where the alterity of God is found in the ability of the master to become servant and his ability to lift up the servant to become master. And what follows, I will draw on Barth's anthropology and Christology to develop a variation on substitutionary atonement. Penal substitution is always in danger of being read as a cosmic drama to appease an angry God. Instead, I will read the Christological movement of the judge judged for us, which we may, you may know from the Church Dogmatics 4.1, as the other otherized for us, by us. The one bearing the weight of our otherization in the stead of human others for our and their benefit. This is a thought experiment. I invite you to explore with me the potentials and limitations of such an interpretation. So let's explore the theme of otherization from a theological perspective. What if, as human beings, we are indeed intended towards an other? What if, as creatures, we are not independent beings, but live and move and have our being in relation to our creator? What if, in a fallen world, this constitutive relationship is beyond our reach? What if, indeed, original sin first and foremost signifies the loss of this other as our counterpart? What if, as human beings, 
we still need to fill that relational structure because in it our being is constitu constituted. But what if no other creature can bear the weight of this? No other creature can do for us what the, creature, what the creator does for us, ground our existence, give us life, identity, purpose. What if thus our attempts at constituting ourselves through other others will always be at their expense, subjugation, and even eclipse? Bart's anthropology postulates that the specific freedom of human being is that its goal and meaning cannot be found within the created sphere. It is the alterity beyond creation humankind is angled towards. Because the human being is, quote, created by God for a life with God, there is a true need of every creature for another and a profound ultimate dissatisfaction with every relationship between creature and creature, unquote. Only, quote, the true holy other, in distinction from every partial and relative other, has the power to satisfy the creature as a partner. God is the genuine counterpart, which alone can finally and primarily satisfy man and all creation as such, unquote. So what, to continue our exploration further, what if the writing of relations in atonement consisted in the fact that God stepped in to be this ultimate other humankind needed? Not only the other to be worshiped and adored, but also the other to bear the weight of our self-assertion. The judge judged for us is then translated into the holy other, otherized by us, for us. The one without sin made sin for us so that we may sin no more against others. Bart upholds that the humanity of Christ is not an abstract human nature, but the concrete fulfillment of what it means to be human spelled out in that particular and singular existence. Christ's humanity consists in his being for others. Quote, in his existence, Christ is referred to man, to other men, his fellows, and this is not merely partially, incidentally, or subsequently, but originally, exclusively, and totally. When we think of the humanity of Jesus, humanity is to be described unequivocally as fellow humanity. That's even a very weak translation of Mitmenschlichkeit. In the light of the man Jesus, man is the cosmic being which exists absolutely for its fellow men. Bart calls this obedience. The fulfillment of what it means to be human, conforming with the essence and goal of humanity, inhabiting the right relation between God and a human being. Christ's alterity is to be found in that he does the truly human thing for the human being, which the human being cannot do for itself. In this being for others, Christ steps into the place of our sin, sacrificing himself to become the object of our otherization. In Jesus Christ, the holy other becomes a concrete other, offering himself as a scapegoat, allowing us to objectify him. The master becomes a suffering servant, the victim of our sin of self-affirmation over against others. He does not resist. He becomes the projection of everything that is weak and despised in the eyes of humankind. He stands in the place of that other unto his own eclipse at the cross. Bart affirms that, quote, under the concepts passus, crucifixus, mortus, sepultus, so um, suffering, crucified, 
died and was buried. The creeds were saying everything that is decisive about the man Jesus, unquote. Not anything Jesus did or said, neither his teaching nor his ministry, neither his ethics nor his personality is decisive in this way. Only his suffering as the being for others is. And before the cross, for one second, we find a humanity strangely united in ostracizing this other. Roman and Jewish law, religious authorities and revolutionary activists, the crowds and the intimate friends, all stand united against this concrete other instead of against each other. As it seems, there is no way, no direct way for us to reach universal humanity. Feuerbach's dream of overcoming the religion, religious illusion proves illusionary itself. Theological insight and critical theory in different varieties come to the same conclusion. Overcoming God as an absolute other does not prevent us from otherizing other others. It is not the detour through a faith in God that prevents true humanity from prevailing. Unity relies on exclusion and the appreciation of difference on some common ground, such as the dialectic of humanity, where we try to get directly to the other human being, we project things onto them that no human being can bear, both positively and negatively. Both the homo homini deus and the homo homini lupus disfigure true humanity. With the insights from cr critical theory, we could almost have to say against Feuerbach, if there was no God, we would have to invent one. Only a God can save us, it seems, from objectifying our fellow human beings as objects either of our worship or aggression. Only God can bear the weight of being this other for us. Dialectically, true humanism it would seem, can only be found on the detour through the holy other. God, then, does not need the incarnation in any way, but we do. Humanity desperately needs God to step into the space, to take the place of the other we otherize, so that no further human others need to become victims in the same process. Only a God is able to bear the weight of that otherization. No human being is. And graciously, God determines himself to be God for the human being, to be the other whom we colonize, otherize, and even kill. And lest this be mistaken for a sanctification of submission and suffering, let me be clear. Christ is not a being for others that we can or should strive to imitate. Substitution here means Christ submits to suffering instead of us, rather than in solidarity with us. The cross is the end of sacrifice, not any kind of model for human imitation or discipleship. Deus homini Deus est. God is God for the human being, precisely in standing in the place of homo deo lupus est, in that God allows the human being to rage like a wolf against him. By the way, this proverb does not do justice to wolves. 
Wolves are among the most gregarious and cooperative animals. You're laughing. Is this just a side comment? I say this to point out, it reveals once more how persistent the structural sin of authorization really is. Throughout this paper, I have advocated for humanity and effectively been tangled up in the same sin I denounced. I have established a unity, a universality, through the exclusion of another other, in this case, the non-human creation, which we continue to objectify, commodify, and exploit. Overcoming sexism, racism, and culturalism is all very well, but just to fall into speciesism only shifts the violence. We have already realized, I think this is a progress, that the word did not become man, as in male, excluding women, but human. So we may, maybe, come to the realization eventually that the word becoming flesh goes even deeper than our anthropocentrism is ready to realize. The decisive, infinite, qualitative distinction Barth talks about is, after all, the difference between creator and creation, between heaven and earth. Therefore, all distinctions and differences within the creaturely realm must surely be relativized in the same way as the distinction between human beings. And I believe it would be possible to reformulate my proposal in the light of this insight, even if Barth did not draw this conclusion. But so this side comment just to show that really only a God can save us because this structural sin is just another loop after another loop. In sum, substitutionary atonement. Christ as the other, otherized for us, by us, in our place. I am aware that this interpretation alone does not do justice to the full range of the canonic witness. And I'm not suggesting that this proposal should abrogate or replace other interpretations, merely that it may supplement them, bringing to light one specific dimension in which the cross may have meaning for our struggles of liberation today. Even within the architecture of Barth's theology alone, we get a more effectively liberatory perspective once the first Christological movement is combined with the other two, the uplifting of the servant to become master, and the prophetic quality of the true witness found in the second and the third part of the Church Dogmatics 4. But already in this first movement, we may get glimpses of a liberatory effect from such a substitutionary theory of atonement. And I will po point out five very quick points and end there. First, in the otherized other, we find a revelation of our sin. At the cross, we see how vast our alienation from God, ourselves, and our fellow human being indeed is, how unsurpassable the gulf separating us from true humanity. Second, in Christ we see that God is on the side of the others otherized by us. Not only does he see them, sympathize and empathize with them, no, he identifies with them. He identifies with those bearing the weight of otherization, stigmatization, oppression, and marginalization. Third, the story does not end at the cross. The resurrection indicates that our otherizing is not the last word. Unlike human beings, God is, in fact, able to bear the weight of our sin, the violence of our otherization, and come out alive under it. The resurrection offers hope because it reveals an excess in God that is life-giving beyond all our death-giving. Fourth, the resurrection does not mean that Christ merely came back to life in order to, so that we can vilify him again and again. 
The ascension into heaven testifies to the fact that God withdraws the victim from our grasp. God puts a definite end to sacrifice in our story of sacrifice without end. Fifth and last, Bart was convinced, and as I indicated in the beginning, this is, I think, both the strength and the weakness of his theology, that everything decisive has already objectively happened in Jesus Christ. If we really understood what happened at the cross, maybe, just maybe, we would have no need to further sacrifice our fellow creatures. But we see little, if anything, of such an effect. We know, and Bart always insisted, that Christians are just as sinful as anyone else. This realization alone does not make the world into the kingdom of God. But I must admit that with the suffering we still see around us, I do not want to accept the answer that everything already is all right despite appearances and that we're merely giving time to realize that. Maybe we need a second coming of Christ to truly realize intellectually and practically the change that has already taken place. But then this is just what is promised to us. So my last point is the fifth volume of the church dogmatics is still unwritten. Judgment will come. It is not only the inbreaking of the holy other into our presence that is frighteningly transformative. We also have the promise, threat, and hope that there will be a future process in which relations will be righted. This fact is mercy and grace. Beyond what little human justice we are able to achieve on this earth, God will set things right. Thank you for your attention.